As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and today, at least in Richmond, the sun is shining, the birds are singing, the U.S. continues to have qualified for the World Cup, which is always nice. Life is good unless you're a player on the outside of the usual squad selection for Greg Berhalter. We're going to be taking a deeper look at five players who currently sit outside the standard USMNT squad. What are these players' strengths and weaknesses? What might they bring to the squad and what might they need to improve to have a chance of making the final roster in Qatar? To break it all down, I'm joined by two friends. Four hours in the future is Graham Ruthven. A fine late afternoon to you, Graham. Hello, Taylor Rockwell. How are you? Doing well. I, I, I would, has anything major happened in the four hours between us? Uh, no, just just grey skies and drizzle in Scotland. When you said it was sunny in Richmond and how that reflected the USMNT, I thought maybe the this, the grey skies reflected the uncertainty around Scotland's place at the World Cup. It was sunny this morning, now it's raining, and yeah, that feels pretty much spot on. Uh, I should continue with the introductions, but I feel like Graham has now led us into curse territory. Graham, are you trying to say that the the weather, the cloudy conditions in Scotland exist primarily because Scotland is oftentimes precariously positioned to make major international competitions? Yes, that's 100% what I'm saying. It's like the woman in Encanto who has the cloud above her head when she's unhappy and basically Scotland has been unhappy for decades. <laughs> perfect, perfect. All right, I'm glad we've gone down this road. Graham, four hours ahead, living three hours in the past. I'm pretty sure that's how time zones work. Is Joe Lowry a good morning to you, Joe? Good morning slash afternoon slash whatever the heck time it is where Graham is in Scotland to both of you. And I, I very much like how poetic things got very quickly and uh, mm-hmm. and the Encanto reference as well. I'm, I'm here for it. I mean, so so Graham has claimed uh, Beppa or Peppa. I never quite know which one it is. Uh, Joe, any Encanto characters that you would like to claim up front? Okay, well, this is confession time. I've still only seen the first half of the movie. Um, All right. And it's been about two months. No, actually, like three or four months since I watched the first half, and I keep meaning to watch the second half. But I'm in this weird spot where I remember liking the first half, but I can't remember a single character's name. <laughs> Attaboy. And, Bruno's Attaboy. And I, Bruno, yes. I'll be, I still don't know if Bruno turns out to be good or bad, so we're in that little weird in-between spot. 
<laughs> he has prophecies that people tend to take in a negative way, and I feel like that's what Ryan does with your predictions. So that feels <laughs> like it connects. I'm good with that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I will move us away from uh, from from Disney and and uh, prophecies and the like uh, <laughs> to talk about some actual players. We're going to be analyzing five. Like I said, uh, they would be in no particular order, uh, or I guess I could maybe just put them in the order that we're actually going to talk about them. We've got Joe Scali, we've got Cameron Carter-Vickers, we've got Alex Mendez, Georgie Mihailovic, and Brandon Vasquez. And Jimmy Conrad. And Jimmy Conrad. Uh, Jimmy Conrad, requested by Jimmy Conrad. I do feel like we might have to actually break down Jimmy Conrad's performances to see how he would fit into this team. But maybe we can do that another day. Right now, Graham, I want to start with you. Which of these five are you most excited to talk about for whatever reason? So... Before the research, I probably would have said CCV just because mm-hmm. I've been uh, banging that drum for uh, for quite a while. He's been brilliant in Scotland this season. I've watched him a lot this season. I really like his his arc, if we're going to call it that, his character arc of this season where he started off slightly flawed and he's ironed out a lot of those flaws for Celtic. And so at this point, I really do feel pretty strongly that he at least deserves a look in the in the June camp by, by Berhalter. But actually, after the after the research, I, I found myself really interested by Brandon Vasquez, mm-hmm. who, when you look at what he's doing and some of the struggles that the USMNT have had in that number nine position, it makes you think about a few things. Really, really does. I think I'm in the same boat. Joe, same question to you. And is there any same name loyalty or bias to be considered when we talk about Joe's galley? Oh, there's always same name loyalty and bias. Yes, Joe's uh, are superior in every way. Everybody knows that at this <laughs> point. Um, but Joe Scali is not the one I'm most excited to talk about. And, and Brandon Vasquez isn't either, not because I'm not excited about what he's doing for Cincinnati, but because I feel like we've been burned by too many number nines too often. So I'm going <laughs> to set him aside and be a little more negative on that whole discussion, but I'll still talk about stuff he does well because there is a lot of that stuff. I think Georgie, Georgie Mihalovic is the one that I'm, I'm most interested in. Because I feel like there is a real lack of depth at the eight spots for the U.S., the, the two number eights in that 4-3-3. We know Weston McKenney, when he's healthy, is, is in there for sure. Yunus Musa is a real contender to start every single game as one of those eights. Luca De La Torre seems to have passed over everyone else but those two in the eight spots based off of the last couple of windows of World Cup qualifying. But after that, I don't think there's a lot of clarity. And I think Georgie is... An option. If he's called up in June, I think he will be an option as one of those number eights, potentially out wide, and maybe we'll talk more about that later on when we get to his section. But I think he's an intriguing player, and I guess I don't want to tip my hand too much, so I'll stop there for now. All right. Well, let's take it into the individual players then, and let's start with Joe Scally, a player that has been discussed a lot on this show and elsewhere because he is playing regularly in the Bundesliga for Borussia Mönchengladbach, but has not been called up to the U.S. since November. He was in camp, did not play, no call-ups since then. He's talked a little bit about that publicly, but not quite that much. Um And my approach for this was to watch his footage and try to figure out what the issue might be, because I was definitely coming at it from a perspective of he's playing in the Bundesliga, he's starting games, he's playing on either side. It seems like it should be a no-brainer. I wonder if there's a personality thing. Uh, And I've come away from watching basically all of his touches against uh, Gruther Firth and against Hertha Berlin, uh, and I sort of feel like I have an answer uh, here. Uh, Joe, how are you feeling about Joe Scali? Do you feel like you've got some clarity on his situation. Yeah, Taylor, you and I were talking about this before we started recording, kind of trying to get a read on what the other person thought without tipping our hands too much. Yep. <laughs> and then we both kind of landed on the fact that Joe Scalley's looked pretty mediocre for Bruce mm-hmm. and Glad back recently. And I think that is true for 
pretty much his, his season after the winter break. So let's think back to the start of the season. He's a surprise starter for, for Mönchengladbach early on in the year. He starts against Bayern Munich and does a lot of good stuff in that game early on. And he, he's a regular for them at the start of the season, really up until the winter break. And he's not as much of a, of a regular player, or at least as, as much of a regular starter for them. It seems to me that he lost that job after the winter break for the second half of the season, but he still has been getting minutes. So he is playing and he's playing at a, a higher level than all but one of the other fullbacks in the U.S. pool, and that one is Sergio Dest. So he certainly has that going for him. But when you watch the the tape, he, he doesn't have elite speed. He's clearly learning out there, and maybe that's the biggest thing. He's he's 19 years old. He's making mistakes. He was dusted once in the second half against Greta Firth over the weekend, had a pretty ill-advised backwards header to the goalkeeper against Mainz. Taylor, I don't know if you saw that. It was in stoppage time. I think he came off the bench in that game and, and was trying to see things out and, and almost didn't. Yeah, almost didn't help with that process. So he he does a lot of things well. Don't get me wrong. He's versatile. You mentioned that, Taylor. He can play on both sides of the back line and has done that for Gladbach. Gets very high up the field and in positionally fits what Baralter asks of his his fullbacks, even though he plays a lot of wingback for Gladbach. It's a very similar job, high and wide. And he can also come inside. And that's one of the things I like about Scally the most is he's not two-footed, but he has a really solid left foot that he almost likes to use more when he's on the right than he's on the left. I don't know if anybody else noticed this, but when he plays left yep. wing back, he doesn't look super comfortable playing passes and opening up his hips to play down the line. But on the right, and I noticed this way back in, in maybe September or August when we first started talking about Scally this year, Taylor, he likes to to turn inside and quickly combine and almost like an inverted winger on that side, work and drift into the half space or drift centrally. And I really like that. It reminds me, I'm not saying this is the case, but it reminds me of Serginho Dest in that he likes to be a little clever on that side. So there's a lot of things that I enjoy about Scally, but I can also understand to an extent, and maybe maybe we'll talk more about this in a moment, I can also understand why Berthar hasn't been as excited about Scally as evidenced by him not playing at all during World Cup qualifying. I can yeah. see why he's not been as excited about Scally as a lot of the folks out there that are seeing him play for Gladbach, and, and maybe I've fallen into this trap as well at times. We're seeing him play in the Bundesliga, but but maybe not actually watching as much of him as Berhalter may be. Graham, uh, one of the reasons why I love having you on these episodes, aside from just your wit and charm, uh, which is a genuine thing, not even trying to be sarcastic, uh, is also because Shucks. I think <laughs> I'm just I'm just trying to steer us away from uh, from when Ryan Bailey's uh, not around. Uh, but but Graham, now I'll take shots at Ryan, I guess. Uh, I also like having you here to sort of balance out potential bias. And like I said in the introduction to this conversation about Joe Scally, I think I'm coming at this from a he he is very good. So why isn't he playing? And that may well set me up to then look for the negatives, to maybe be a little bit more critical than I would be if I were just watching him, uh, generally speaking. I won't say that's what Joe was doing, but I will ask you, from what you've heard from us so far, do you agree or disagree? Are you a little bit more hyped on him than we might be? I think I'm pretty much in the, in the same place as, as you guys on, on, on Joe Scally. I think we all fall into the into the temptation of seeing someone, and Joe's referenced, referenced this already, of seeing someone playing first-team football for Gladbach in the Bundesliga and thinking, oh, that guy has to be in the squad. And I still maintain that Joe Scally probably should have been in the the, the roster by by now and over World Cup qualifying. I know Shaq Moore is brought in for that, that last window somewhat surprisingly, and I don't think that was... Um, I do think there was some logic behind that because Berhalter used him for the Gold Cup, obviously, and had some success with him. But I think Scally should have been integrated before then so that Scally could have been brought into the squad at that point. But I, I do see an incomplete player with, with Joe Scally. I, I think one of the, the areas that he could, he could certainly improve on 
and it's not necessarily a weakness, but certainly an area of he could improve is, is his crossing. Um, there are times when he gets into an advanced position out wide and, and he overhits the delivery. And it reminds me a bit of how uh, Jedi Robinson has been in the past guilty of trying to hit areas rather than players with his crosses. And Scally, when I was watching the game tape, seems to have a, a similar problem and technically i would like him to get a little bit more whip on his deliveries at times it feels like he's kind of wedging crosses into the middle and even if they do find their target it makes it difficult for the attacker to do something with them to get any power on 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 that cross but there are also things that i really like about joe scally so i think he's i think as joe references he's very good with with both both feet which allows him to play on both sides, as we've already spoken about. And I think it also makes him a very difficult player to press. He's very press resistant. As a, a left back, for example, if he's if he's pressed and, and shown inside, he's he's able to move the ball onto his right foot and can play through the, the, the middle to break lines and, and maybe find a, te- a teammate with a pass. If, however, he's uh, shown down the outside instead, he is comfortable with his left and he can find a pass or he can ca- carry the ball with a dribble. As I say, once he gets into those advanced positions, I would like his final product to be slightly better. But it does make him a difficult prospect to, to set up to, to press against. And I, th- I think the, the sharpness of his decision-making in those situations is pretty decent. He's got a good awareness of where his teammates are and he's got a decent technical ability with both feet to, to find him. And I think that sharpness of decision-making is, is pretty good. So there are a lot of fundamentals there that feel like he can improve further and there yeah. could be a first-team USMNT player in, in there. Keep in mind, he's still very young. This is his first full season of playing full, uh, first-team Bundesliga football. But there are a lot of areas where he can make gains in his in his game. And and Graham, this isn't just this isn't just his first full season of Bundesliga football. This is his first full season of, of senior level soccer anywhere, yeah. right? He can't coming over from NYCFC, he was in the academy there. He didn't play I guess he played a, a few minutes for the first team, but he didn't play much at all for NYCFC and MLS. And now he's just finally getting a taste of what this is like. And so, you know, we can criticize things that he does, and I think that's understandable because we're trying to learn what these players are good at and and where they can still improve. And so all that is good, but I think it's so important to remember that he is 19. When you're thinking about this player, he is still growing. He is still learning. He's going through these reps. He's learning, how do I press the ball? How do I react to things in my own box? Because he just doesn't have a ton of reps in, in those moments, in those sequences. So that's one part of this for me. And to bring it back for a second to... The underlying current behind this whole conversation, which is basically, you know, should Scali have been involved before and will we see him before the World Cup and will he be in the World Cup roster, right? All of this comes back down to those things. I I can understand why Baralther isn't super hot on Scali. At least it seems that way from his call-ups or lack thereof. But at the same time, I think about the other fullbacks in the pool right now. And you're looking at Serginho Dess and Jedi Robinson as the the starters on the right and the left. And that's pretty clear at this point. After that... I feel like there's a lot of of murkiness in this pool. DeAndre Yedlin seems to have locked down that backup right back spot, which does make it a little harder for Scally to to really make his way onto any senior U.S. roster for the World Cup. But still, we've already talked about how he can play on both sides. He brings that versatility. I mean, are any of us really prepared to say that Joe Scally is a worse option than than George Bello or than Sam Vines or than Reggie Cannon or Shaq Moore? I think there's a good chance that Scally's better than those players while also still not being a, oh my gosh, you have to start him right now kind of player. Cause I don't think he's at that level. When you watch the film, he doesn't really jump off the screen at you. He doesn't jump off the, the spreadsheets either. So I think Scally is in this in between where folks that are maybe calling for him to, to be involved automatically. That's probably a bit of an overreaction, but at the same time, 
I do find myself in the camp of, of people that are saying, yeah, bring him in. He probably should have already been brought in, you know, maybe more than he was. And now really, I think you, you want to get him in in that June window. You want to get him some yeah. reps or at least get another look at him in camp because I think he just might be better than some of the other options you have in those the, spots. The thing, the thing, Joe, that's surprising to me in terms of Scally not being involved in the roster is his genuine versatility of playing on, on both yeah. sides. It doesn't feel like there's too much of it. I mean, he's more comfortable on the right, but it doesn't feel like there's a, there's a great difference with him playing on the left. He's played equal minutes for Gladbach on both sides this season. And I can't remember what window it was. It might have been the January window. Uh, the, the, the January and March windows kind of <laughs> merged into one for me. But there was a roster that, that was released, a US roster, and it was almost like, where are the left backs yeah, uh, yeah. In, in, this, in this roster? You put Scali in there, and even though he might be technically a right back, He's he's comfortable as a left back. You kind of solve that problem by having him in there. So I I still maintain I would I would have him in the roster. But I totally agree. Once you get below Destin Robinson, it, it's kind of much a much of a muchness between all the options. To to bridge the gap to clean it all up, I think what I, what I saw and what I've heard in this conversation so far is basically a young player who is developing, who has a good defensive side of his game, and that is a thing I saw. Joe, I think you're right to spotlight that sometimes he doesn't have that speed, so he does get beat when he tries to make that play. Sometimes he gets there. Other times I saw him not get there at all or get really easily bypassed. But that moment aside, I felt like he was good in 1v1 closedowns. I thought he did a good job of keeping his positioning, making sure he tucked inside as necessary and stepped out when he needed to but then going forward I didn't see him carrying the ball forward as much I didn't see him facilitating attacking play the way we tend to see uh, the USD with their fullbacks uh, and I and I thought on occasion we saw him get involved but maybe not as much as I would have liked and so I think if you're Greg Berhalter if you're going with a player that can play on either side is somewhat comfortable with his left certainly more comfortable with his right but is predominantly okay with playing with both feet, but I think doesn't really dominate on that left side so much. I have a feeling if Joe Scally were left-footed, he would be in this squad yeah. because he would be a left-back, right. and then he would be in the team, and maybe not starting, but would definitely be Anthony Robinson's deputy. But because of that versatility, I wonder maybe if when he comes into camp, if they're using him in different spots, if they tried him on the right and he looked more comfortable there, and it just wasn't at the level that was needed. And so once the U.S. qualifies, once they have more friendlies and there's the Nations League, I would expect us to see him involved more often because there's less at stake. They can roll the dice a bit more and see how well he blends over a more extended period of time. And I think the more he does to increase his attacking output, especially the crosses into the box, as you said, Graham, I think that goes a long way towards convincing Greg Berhalter that Scali should be an ever-present fixture as opposed to a one-time call-up. I totally agree. And I, I sympathize with Berhalter here because he already has one fullback who can do both the right-back thing and the left-back thing in Sergino Dest. And it really does feel like DeAndre Yedlin, for what he's brought on the field at times in qualifying, although I don't think he was all that good in the last window, to be completely honest. I'm not sure he is my, my favorite option out there at right back. He's clearly a leader in the locker room. You watch the Behind the Crest video that U.S. Yeah. Soccer put out after the last window, and he's the guy giving the pregame locker room speech. He's a veteran, and so I, I really cannot envision a world where DeAndre Edlin isn't in the U.S.'s World Cup squad. And so then you're looking at that Brawther deciding between, do I want to bring a left-footed backup left back, or do I want to bring uh, another right back who can do both of those jobs and I can either use Dest as my backup left back or Scally as my left backup left back. It gets pretty complicated here with some of these different permutations and it, it will come down to Baralther's personal preference, of course. But yeah, my, my overarching takeaway from all this is Joe Scally, very good player, learning a lot of new things, still has a lot of room to grow. But I, I think 
this is more nuanced, I guess, than a lot of folks want it to be, and it yep. doesn't make Greg Berhalter's life all that easy. At the very least, it makes me feel comfortable to know that there are reasons there. Because when we watch John Brooks and we see him play well, it becomes harder to accept that there are on-field reasons for his lack of involvement. I was sort of nervous that that was also the case for Joe Scally, that maybe there were personality clashes or something else going on. It does feel to me like it is an on-field thing that will ideally be uh, or continue to be worked upon and maybe we see more of Joe Scally. I would expect we will. I would also expect that we're going to take a break right now and then we will be back with two more Americans playing abroad. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We are continuing to analyze some players who are on the bubble or maybe just outside the bubble of making the U.S. men's national team. Graham Ruthven, let's talk Cameron Carter-Vickers, shall we? Uh, I'm assuming he is the player, despite what you said earlier on, he's the one that you have the most loyalty towards. You have a Cameron Carter-Vickers like blanket and pillow. Uh, I don't know what other uh, sort of merchandise you might have, but I'm guessing CCV has that soft spot in your heart. Uh, yeah, I guess. Just because I've, I've watched a lot of him this season, uh, just in case there's any kind of Rangers fans listening to this and I'm, I'm uh, nailing my, my colors to, to the flagpole here. Uh, don't have any allegiance in that sense, but absolutely watching a, an American in, in Scotland when I'm doing these podcasts, obviously I'm keeping a, a closer eye on him than maybe most players in that Celtic team. And he has been very impressive. And of the, of the five players that we have analysed today, he is comfortably the player that for me feels closest to the roster and at this point should probably be in the roster. I'll be, as I say, I think I said this at the top of the show, I'll be surprised if he's not involved at some point in, in the summer when Celtic are in their off-season as well, so there's not the, the kind of travelling aspect that might have been the case earlier in the season. But just to give a, a kind of slight synopsis, obviously a lot of people will know this already about CCV's career, but in terms of what player he is, he's a, a physical central defender who has bounced around a bit over the, the course of his career to date. Broke through at Spurs under Pochettino. There was a lot of excitement around him. I remember him getting billed as the the next Ledley King. I think that was meant as a compliment. <laughs> but yeah, Spurs fans seem to highly rate Ledley King. Obviously had a very bad injury record. But that is besides the point. There was a lot of hype around him. He then went on a number of loans in the Championship. Sheffield United, Ipswich Town, Swansea, Stoke, Luton, Bournemouth. As I say, bounced around a bit. A Last bit. summer, he a joined bit. Celtic on loan. And he's flourished in the time since then. He's been a near ever-present for a, a Celtic team that has defied expectations this season and is on course to win the, the Scottish title. There is talk of CCV winning the, the Player of the Year in Scotland. I would suspect he might not win that, but he's certainly a, a kind of top three, top four candidate for that award. 
and Celtic want to keep him. There, there's talk of them paying a club record fee of around £10 million for him. And um, as, I, as I said earlier, there were some flaws in his game when he initially joined Celtic. There was a few shaky performances, but I haven't really seen a shaky performance from him for Celtic for some time now, for a number of months. And he's become one of the, the most trusted players that Ange Postacoglu has in that team. And I think the exciting thing about CCV is if he's improved this much in one season under Postacoglu, I'm really excited to see what he might do next season when Celtic are, if they win the title, they'll be in the Champions League next season, the Champions League group stages. So a higher stage, higher caliber of opposition. So it still doesn't feel like CCV has kind of hit his ceiling with, with Celtic. And at this point, this move has been a, a great thing for his career. It's almost like stability in the backing of a manager uh, have a positive impact on a player and make yeah. a big difference. Graham, one question for you, though. You mentioned that of these players we're talking about, he is the one who feels the closest to making the roster for the U.S., but he has mm-hmm. also, to my memory, not really been called up by no. Greg Berhalter. So once, w- once, what's, yes. what's the, the once. difference? Sorry, Joe, what was that? Once. He was called up in a pre-Gold friendly against Jamaica in 2019. Continue. There we the go. big one. The big one, go. yes. Everyone like not in World Cup qualifying, correct? We <laughs> yes. didn't miss that one as well? Correct. Cool, all right, tweet. <laughs> He's not a Matthew Hoppy. He played eight minutes in a game that we totally forgot about. Cool, that makes me happy. Uh, so, Graham, so what do you mean then when you say he's the closest? Because it doesn't seem like necessarily that's from a... Greg Berhalter yeah. has talked about bringing him in. I'm assuming you mean from his talent and ability. Yes, absolutely, on, on, his, on his ability. And also just in how... When I game out the role that he could play for the USMNT in that roster, I don't think anyone is talking about uh, disrupting that center that center back pairing of of uh, Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman. I think that is pretty set. Obviously, you can't legislate for injuries or whatever, but you probably don't want to disrupt that at, that, at this point. But for me, CCV could come in and very easily be a, a strong deputy for Walker Zimmerman on the right on the right side of that center back pairing. That is the the role that he has played for Celtic. I see a lot of similarities between how Zimmerman, it's not his greatest strength, but he can bring the ball out from the back and play the, those passes up the up the wing. I think CCV actually might be better than Zimmerman at that. He is physical like Zimmerman in the way that he uh, defensively has a lot of natural aggression, but also an attacking uh, uh, set pieces in the opposition box. We obviously saw that in the, the old firm recently where CCV scores the goal that likely gave Celtic the title in Scotland. And I, I just see a lot of fundamental qualities with CCV. He's, as I say, he's physically strong. That's something that's probably helped him in Scotland. He's certainly not the tallest, but he's good in the air. As I say, he's got a, a natural aggression, aggression about him. And I found a quote from Tab Ramos. He was he was speaking about how they used to put CCV on near posts on every defensive corner because he was he was the best header of the ball that the U20s had, or as he put it, he could head the ball further than any other player in my team could kick it. <laughs> um, and he uses his ball well to hold off defenders. He he plays with a a calmness that hasn't always been a good thing earlier in his career in instances where maybe a little bit more focus might have helped him. And that's at the start of the season for Celtic. That was, there were times when he would take his eye off the ball. He would miscontrol it. He would lose a man. Sometimes that calmness isn't, isn't a good thing, but it has been a good thing for Celtic in a title race. And I think at Celtic, um, in a title race with Rangers, that pressure has kind of brought the best out of him. There are players who crumble under that pressure, and it is a lot of pressure up here in Scotland. It's similar to kind of a Premier League title race in terms of the scrutiny. He's he's kind of flourished, and he's he's handled it. So it's that sort of thing that makes me think a World Cup. It, he he takes a World Cup and he's stride. If you ask me, he's got that kind of demeanour that's not going to fluster him, and and he's just going to get on with his game. 
Joe, would you like to echo any of those positives or should we talk about a few drawbacks? What might be holding him back from making the team? Uh, I, I would love to talk about what might be holding back, holding him back from making the team. For me, Taylor, it boils down to just one thing, really. Well, maybe, maybe two things. The first thing being that Zimmerman and Robinson seem to have really locked down that, that starting center back pairing. Zimmerman, especially, I think is, is written in pen on any team sheet at this point. And Robinson may be slightly behind him. The other thing, though, that I can, the only other thing I can think about, Taylor, after watching all this tape is that CCV just doesn't really get tested a whole lot. And that, for me, is, hmm. is maybe the biggest thing that holds him back. The level in Scotland outside of really that top two isn't high, right? And, and so you look at maybe games against Rangers as ones that you can really carefully evaluate. You look at games in the Europa League when Celtic were in the Europa League earlier this season and, and in the Europa Conference League. And they're now out of both of those competitions. I mean, those are games you can analyze in terms of higher quality opponents, but there just isn't a lot of tape out there from this season from CCV against against really good, capable teams. There's a few games that they've had, maybe maybe 10 all told this season out of a lot more games than that. So my one reservation with CCV, and to be clear, I would like to see him called up in June because of pretty much everything that Graham said, his on-ball ability is better to my eye again against weak opposition. So, so maybe there's an asterisk there. His on-ball ability, even in those games against Rangers and against you know Bayer Leverkusen and against whoever else that they've played this season in different competitions, I think his on-ball ability is better than Zimmerman is better than Robinson is is probably better than anyone not named John Brooks in the U.S. center back pool right now. Maybe Chris Richards has a has an argument there, but I like what he does with the ball. I want to see him in Nations League, but I, I just. I'm not as confident in him as I want to be simply because of his club situation, which is not really his fault. It's not his fault that Celtic don't get tested on a regular basis, but they don't. And that does concern me just a little bit. I mean, I guess it's his fault in that he's a competent defender. If he weren't, then they'd get tested a lot more. So in that way, I guess it's a positive. Uh, Graham, we've long worried about CCV's distribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like that has been corrected, yeah. at least to some extent, this season. How much of that is, do you think, the way Celtic play, uh, the manager backing him, or is it just individual growth? What do you credit for that improvement? I give Postacoglu a huge amount of credit because CCV is not the only player in that Celtic squad who's now a lot better with the ball at, at his feet. I can only speak so much about the problems that CCV has had in the past because I didn't see him every week in every loan spell he's had because uh, that feels like that would be an impossible task. Um, but for Celtic, as I say, to repeat myself a little bit, he has improved even from the start of the season until now. So he's in the 93rd percentile for progressive passing distance. He's only in the, the 52nd percentile for uh, for total number of progressive passes per 90 minutes. But that suggests that when he is making a progressive pass out from the back, it is to someone quite high up. And you would assume that this is helping Celtic break break lines. And that, that fits with my eye test, where this season it's been really common for CCV to look for uh, a player called Liel Abada high up on the right wing. Um, they've got a pretty good connection. He will completely bypass that the right back that Celtic play, uh, Juranovic. He'll step out with the ball and then he'll play a right-footed pass up the wing to Abada. He'll turn and Celtic are away. And that has become a, a key feature of, of the way that Celtic play. I'm not saying CCV is, uh, is, is David Alaba all of a sudden in terms of his passing ability from central defence. But as I've said, I think on a previous podcast, Celtic play to my eye, and to, I think to many people's eye, they play a more technical-minded, yes. possession-heavy game than yes. the, even the USMNT do. And CCV wouldn't be in Postacoglu's team if he couldn't play in that style. Postacoglu's been ruthless. Any player who 
hasn't been able to play that way has either been sold or pushed to the side and CCV has been an ever present in that team so just just looking at how Postcoglu has had has faith in him I um I put a lot of stock in that just because of the way that Postcoglu likes his teams to play I don't have I don't have any reservations about CCV's ability to help the US break down a low block because that is all he does with Celtic Graham to your point I was watching a, a ton of clips of him yesterday and that is like he's He's 20 yards past the halfway line because that's how deep teams sit against Celtic. He is way up the field driving forward with the ball on his right foot. He doesn't like really to necessarily dribble past that first line of pressure, but he'll drive into space to then give him better passing options and maybe try to draw out a defender or a player in the opposition's defensive block to then pass around them. He's almost like a quarterback, an NFL quarterback with some of his distribution where he's looking long first, like his, his first option is downfield. He's trying to break lines and he does that a lot. And if that option isn't there, and it's not there a lot of the times either because of how deep teams sit and they're really compressing space centrally, then he'll check it down to, I guess, a, a running back on a screen or a tight end and a flatter. In, in this case, it's just a center back partner on the left side of that back line. But he, he makes those reads and it looks to me like he's very good at those reads. The one thing with the ball that I'm not convinced about with CCV because we just don't see it with Celtic is his play under pressure out from the back. And the U.S., it seems to me, has moved a little away from that style. They're not built out of the back at all costs, so maybe this doesn't matter as much. But he looked he looked okay under pressure. But again, I mean, I had to go back all the way to like yeah. November or October of 2021 to find any consistent – any game where CCV was consistently under pressure. And I had to go back to the Europa League or the Europa Conference League or whatever that is. So that's a question for me. But I really don't see – any downside in bringing him in to this squad, right? The center backs in the last window were Zimmerman, Robinson, Aaron Long, EPB, and, and James Sands, if you want to count him as a center back. I think CCV can do a lot of the defensive things that pretty much all of those guys can do. He's, he's likely not as quick with his feet defensively, not maybe not as agile as Zimmerman or Robinson or Long, or maybe even EPB. So I guess that's maybe a knock against him, but I, I think... I think there's a good chance that CCV works out, and I pretty much only see upside in bringing him in. If, if he works out, then you have another really reliable change of pace center back option who can help you break down blocks at a World Cup. If he doesn't work out, then you go back to Zimmerman and Robinson. Maybe John Brooks is in the picture. Maybe he's not, and you're pretty much right back where you were before. It just It's only upside for me in bringing him in, in, in June. You learn things one way or the other. Yeah, Joe, I... I think your point about him not being pressed much in Scotland is is entirely fair and to be honest I think that is that's a better point than the kind of lack of quality point because I, I think while I agree that there's not a great depth of quality in the Scottish League there are just some players that you can tell could step up a level yeah. and I've seen it over the years I'm not saying he's anywhere close to as good as Virgil van Dijk but you used to watch Virgil van Dijk and at Celtic and you'd go okay that, that's a low quality opposition but you can just tell this guy has another few gears to go and he could cope against a better caliber opposition I see some similar things with CCV again not making that comparison but when you say he doesn't get pressed that is completely accurate because Celt no one can press Celtic in Scottish yeah. football not even Rangers Rangers can't get close to Celtic yeah. they, they sit deep and they wait for Celtic to come on top of them so that's why I say next season with the Champions League that is going to be very interesting with CCV to see because that's the sort of teams he's going to face in the Champions League they're going to press Celtic and how he handles that will tell us just how good he is and I think to bring it all, all home Graham your initial point being that he he seems the player best positioned or most ready to make the senior team to be in there in camp. 
when I look at uh, like the way we categorize these things, they're like, what are they good at? What are they bad at? What's their best position or what do they need to work on? Uh, it seems like what he needs to work on is basically, if he gets called into camp, having a good camp. Because yeah. there's not a ton else he can yeah. do at club level. So it's about how does he perform in camp to justify being in there in that maybe number four center back spot. And I think I'm okay with that because I'm really excited to see Cameron Carter-Vickers grow and develop and, and be a key player for Celtic and hopefully for the U.S. Uh, that is a player that is probably more familiar to some Cameron Carter-Vickers than the next player we're going to discuss, unless anyone else has anything else to say about CCV. On to the next. Nope. I'm All just right. waving my CCV flag. <laughs> there we go. Official uh, merchandise. <laughs> Graham's in charge of that one. I like it. Uh, <laughs> our final European-based player we're going to talk about today would be Alex Mendez. Joe, for some listeners, Alex Mendez might be a new name. For others, he's a name that they've been following with anticipation for years. For the first group, can you explain a little bit of why the second group likes him so much? Why is he a name that we've known about for so long? The answer to that in two words is left foot. Alex Mendez's left foot oh, yeah. is <laughs> class. Like... I don't want to say unrivaled in the U.S. pool, but he's ridiculous. He's a player coming up through the USU system, the LA Galaxy Academy. Then he moves to Freiburg back in 2018, goes to the U-20 World Cup with the U.S. in, in 2019, then goes to Ajax and plays some for young Ajax, and then that didn't work out so well, I guess. And, and now he's with Vizela in Portugal in the, in the top division there. His left foot is so, so good, and we could see that on full display at the U-20 World Cup, some throughout you know, other U-20 games and with the Galaxy. That This, this Mendez pick along with Ledesma, along with like Sebastian Soto and some of the other members of that U-20 team. That was in the peak uh, Twitter compilation era of U.S. men's national team fandom because we were so desperate to <laughs> to have anything exciting to talk about in, the, in those in-between years after failing to qualify for the World Cup and before World Cup qualifying for this cycle. There was just nothing to do. And so the U-20 World Cups were huge. They were massive for the U.S., maybe more so than a lot of other countries around the world. And Mendez pops when you watch him play, less so now, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But when you when you watch him, especially with those U-20 teams, he pops. He splits lines with his left foot. He, he's always looking to progress play. He is like this saucy, creative, you know, throwback style, or at least he was, this saucy, creative throwback style, free eight or ten, who's roaming and, and really just is so fun to watch. And so I was really excited when we decided to dive into his film for this episode because that's the kind of player he was. The questions around Alex Mendez were always about his engine, about his his motor, about his work rate. He he didn't really do a ton of off-ball movement, which is part of what made him that classic number 10 type of player. He let things happen around him and just kind of did his own thing. And that's not really possible nowadays in, in 2022 in soccer. That just doesn't happen anymore. So now he's playing with Vizela in Portugal, and things are different for Alex Mendez. He's not a yeah. perfect defender. He's not a perfect player. He, uh, he came on against Benfica recently in, in Portugal. He came on to play left mid and he just got absolutely toasted by Rafa Silva, like just completely destroyed. So he is not Tyler Adams out there. He is not even like Paul Ariola or Tim Weah in his defensive ability, Weston McKinney, any of those guys. But he looks to me, Taylor, and I want to hear your perspective on this. Like he has grown a lot defensively. He looks much more willing to run and to move and to defend. He just wasn't really doing that stuff before. And I get the sense from what I've read about Vizela and their style and certainly from what I've watched that if you're not running or at least willing to do some of that work, you're not going to get on the field, Taylor. Yeah, I, I think that that is, that is absolutely accurate. And when you're playing for a a 
uh, Portuguese team that was just promoted last season. They finished second in the second division. Now they're in the uh, Primera. And I think are relatively comfortable with like five games remaining. I think they're five points ahead, something like that, of the relegation playoff spot. But that does mean, yeah, you've got to fight. You've got to battle for everything. And that is what I saw. Joe, you mentioned that Benfica game. What I did also see is he is still getting limited minutes. Yes, I think he got two true. in that game, subbing on for a sub. Uh, and he seems to get maybe 20 to 30 minutes every couple of games. I think a huge part of that is because uh, Osama Rashid, the Iraqi international, was brought in in January to play as a central midfielder. And it seems like he has taken up a lot of Alex yeah. Mendez's minutes. That's who Mendez seems to sub on for when I saw him. But... I did see pretty much everything you're talking about, Joe. When we did see him on the pitch, I saw him being very tidy on the ball when it was necessary, playing like three-touch soccer a lot of the time, but then can carry, can go on a dribble when it's needed, and can take up good positions in areas of space to either pull defenders in or to be an outlet. And I liked that little bit of work rate to maybe make those 10-yard sprints to get himself into a new spot where he was more available. But I also saw that defensive work rate improve. Not saying it was flawless, but I saw him working back, tracking back, doing a lot of the running to put himself in the smart position, doing the hard work first, basically, to make sure that he was goal side or where he needed to be. And another little thing I noticed was professionally fouling as the situation required and happy to disrupt play by picking up a yellow or just putting in a challenge to slow things down. And there's a little bit of that sort of game IQ that was maybe lacking or maybe we just didn't get to see as much because he was mostly playing for the IX reserves, as you said. So I saw a lot of positives. I saw a few negatives. I'd like to know what Graham Ruffin now has to say about Alex Mendez. Yeah, so a player that I have to admit I, I didn't mm-hmm. know a, a great deal about before I started uh, the research. Obviously, remember that U20, was it World Cup? Or was it the qualification for the U20 World Cup? I remember he scored a, a brilliant goal against Costa Rica um, where he takes a touch and just kind of unleashes this laser oh, yeah. into the back of the net. I remember that bouncing around Twitter at the time. Um, I ever, From what I saw of the game tape of him for uh, Vizela in Portugal, I agree with everything that you guys have said. He seems like a more functional player now. He's playing in, um, when he is getting game time, he is playing in that, that double pivot for Vizela, which requires him to be a two-way player. And I kind of missed the player he was before. It kind of <laughs> reminded yeah. me a little bit of... This is obviously an elite level example, but it, it reminded me of how everyone told Wayne Rooney for a long time that he had he had to get the fire out of his game. You know, he had to be a lot more composed in the ball, and then he did that, and all of a sudden became a much more boring kind of standard player. And the thing that made Mendes so special was getting into those positions where he can. Let's not beat about the bush. His, his best quality, as you said, Joe, right at the top, was as his left foot. Not just in t- not just in terms of shots, but set piece deliveries as well. He's so good at putting corner kicks into the box, which obviously doesn't require an, uh, an outfield uh, uh, position. But in terms of getting making use of that left foot in dangerous areas, I I don't see that as much from him now, and I feel like maybe uh, reverting back to giving him that that little bit more freedom might unleash a little bit of that special sauce that you were talking about, Joe. I think I think Vizella is almost like boarding school for Alex Mendez. You know, I, I'm not saying like okay. this is a good parenting approach. I'm not a parent, so I, I also don't want to criticize too much. But it's like, you know, the parents are just so fed up with with trying to to get their child to do whatever it is. I don't I don't know. We don't need to walk through this whole situation. But they end up sending him to boarding school to work on <laughs> whatever those things are. Maybe a different person, a different approach will help shape their child. 
it's almost like Alex Mendez was was at home and he's playing all these left-footed through balls and he's doing so much wonderful stuff, but he just won't defend. He won't move off the ball. He won't do a lot of things that you need to do to be a capable, effective, efficient soccer player. And so he gets sent off to the Vizela boarding school of defending and goes and defends a bunch and doesn't really get to use his left foot. I imagine, Graham, and I hope this for Alex Mendez, maybe not next season, but maybe over the next couple of years after the World Cup. And I think right here when we're talking about Alex Mendez, we are talking about a player who will not feature for the U.S. before the World Cup or during the World Cup. I think he's a post, I think he's a 2023 player and beyond for the U.S. I, I think hopefully over the next couple of years, maybe post World Cup, he'll get a move back to a team that does use the ball a little bit more and where he can use that left foot and shine. And we start seeing some more Twitter compilations of him again because those things are awesome. That's that's what makes Mendez so special. It's not his defending and it never will be. But I think Vizela is a useful experience for him because otherwise I don't think we're going to get to see his left foot at all because he'll just be sitting on the bench because he doesn't move and he doesn't do things defensively. So credit to Alex Mendez for becoming a more complete player, even if it means temporarily that he's become a more boring player. Well, what you've just said about Alex Mendes there, Joe, is exactly what I'm hoping is the case with Billy Gilmore, but I'm not entirely sure what he's <laughs> learning at the Norwich City boarding school this season. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Yeah, Graham, would you rather that. have Billy Gilmore, like, scratching for survival in Norwich, or, I mean, Vizela not exactly comfortable in their relegation battle, but, or would you rather have him sort of bossing the midfield, the attack, the defense, whatever it might be in Portugal? Uh, the latter option. <laughs> okay, all right. You could have said anything against Norwich City there, and I would have gone for the latter option. Josh Sargent nodding along in agreement. Yes, with you. exactly. Uh, <laughs> Joe, uh, one final question then about Alex Mendez. I, I think I agree with you that short of him having some like meteoric uh, scoring streak or like moving to Benfica and then looking like he fits there, I don't think he will be in much consideration for the 2022 World Cup. Uh, but going forward, let's say Berhalter leads the U.S. They do really, really well. He gets a renewal. He sticks around. I'm not trying to have that conversation. I'm just sure. trying to say if Berhalter yeah. continues with the system <laughs> in place, where does Alex Mendez fit in the Berhalter sort of model? Or put it a different way, Joe, what would you like him to play for the United States? I like him in one of those eight spots. And we'll talk more about this with Georgie later on. Mendez isn't a, a presser. And I don't think he'll ever, I don't think he ever will be even after he leaves Vizella. He's being asked to do a lot of that right now. But to Graham's point, that's like not his game really. So when you put him at one of the number eight spots, or if you do that for the U.S., you are sacrificing something in that midfield. You are sacrificing some pure athletic ability. I think that's, that's just objectively true when you compare Mendez to a, a guy like Yunus Musa or even a guy like De La Torre. But I love the idea, similar to the conversation around maybe we should move Gio Reyna into midfield. He gives you something different. He gives you a technical quality and an ability to break lines that no one else in this number eight group does. Not even not even Gio Reyna, probably not even Giorgio, although Reyna is probably the closest in terms of offensive ability. So I'd like to see him as one of those eights. You get him in between the lines. You get him then breaking lines and threading balls in behind the back line. That would be really fun. The other option, and he's done this a bit for Vizela this season, earlier on before the winter, uh, he, he's also played some right wing and that could work as well where he's coming in on his left foot and, and playing balls in behind for a number nine or for someone making that run. Maybe it's a right back overlapping on that side. I wouldn't be mad at that either, but I'd probably start with him as an eight and then maybe look at him out wide on the right side as well. Final question for you both about this one. Is the IX Academy the one that makes you feel the most excited if there's a U.S. player in it? Like, I guess... 
Lamassie at a different point in time and maybe going forward under Xavi. But aside from that, like I will always remember John O'Brien coming through the Ajax system and being like, ooh, there's an American at Ajax. That's a huge deal. Yeah. And I wonder if he laid the foundation for that sort of uh, allure of Ajax. No, absolutely. And when, when I was watching some of the game tape of, of Mendes, it's interesting to see some of the players in that Ajax youth team that have made the, the step up. Mm-hmm. So uh, Juren Timber was in one of the teams I was watching. Brian Broby was actually the player that Mendes was playing a lot of kind of through balls through to. He's, he's, he's made the step up into the first team uh, as well this season. We I, I relate it to... I always think Sporting Lisbon seems quite exciting yeah. as well. We had we had Ryan Gold at Sporting Lisbon, and that felt quite exciting. And actually, Ryan Gold then did the the Alex Mendes thing yeah, of going I was on just loan in, that. <laughs> in Portugal. Yeah, so may, maybe uh, Mendes going to flourish at Vancouver Whitecaps some some point down the line. <laughs> you joke, but I'm actually here for that. So, <laughs> all right, all right. So Joe Joe just needs him to go to Vancouver, then he will star and win the 2026 World Cup. Uh, that is our Americans abroad component of this show. But we've got two Americans in Major League Soccer to be discussed. That after a quick break. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Welcome back. Two more players to be discussed. Up first, Joe Lowry, Georgie Mihailovic, a man who has played for the United States in years past, uh, has played for the United States more recently, and has been hyped at points, underrated at points, overrated at points. He's been all over the place. Where is he now, Joe? Why are we talking about Georgie? Well, he's in Montreal right now, first of all, and he's doing quite well in Montreal as Usually a left-sided attacking player. He's in that left half space dropping into midfield. He plays a a hybrid role that I think is maybe most similar to the U.S.'s left wing role, where we'll we'll see Christian Pulisic often coming inside and dropping into midfield. He does a lot of that stuff for Montreal, and he's been he's been good this season. He's bossed some games for Wilfred Nancy. He's right-footed. He's smooth on the ball. He can glide past you and cuts quickly onto that right foot. He likes to drive the ball forward. He's he's versatile in his positioning, which is something that I, I was kind of trying to get at with that hybrid role he's yep. playing for Montreal. It's also something we've seen somewhat recently in Olympic qualifying. Not that we really need to think much about that because that was awful. But Georgie played left wing and he played left the left side of number eight spot under Jason Kreiss in Guadalajara for that tournament. So he's done both of those jobs. And one of the things I wanted to ask both of you is where you think he should play. And I'll do that in just a moment. But one one last thing on on Georgie as far as his foundation as a player. He's not really the the fastest guy, and I don't know how good of a presser he is. He doesn't do a ton of that for Montreal, but I do think he brings some something different as one of those number eights. I think he's a, a contender, like I said early on in this show. I'm intrigued by him because I think he's a contender to, to sweep up some of those extra minutes in the eighth spot for the U.S. going forward, maybe even past the June window if he shows well in June, if he's even called up in June. He brings a nice mix of technical quality, 
ball progression in, in dribbling as well that maybe some other players in the pool don't have. Weston McKinney probably has a lot of those things, but they're very different players. Yunus Musa breaks lines with his dribbling, but I don't think he's as good of a passer as Georgie is. And, and then De La Torre is the other guy who I think is is a borderline lock for the World Cup at this point. Maybe that's a little premature. But after that, we're looking at a, a bunch of question marks. Gianluca Busio, Sebastian Legette, Kellen Acosta as an eight. Is that, is that really what Greg Berhalter wants to go with headed into November? I doubt it. So I think the door's open for Georgie probably in midfield, even though that's not exactly the role he plays. But Taylor, I'll start with you and then maybe Graham can give us thoughts on this as well. I guess, what did you see from Georgie? What have you noticed from him as far as his playing style? Do you agree with what I'm saying? And then second of all, mm-hmm. where where do you think he he will or should play for the U.S. men's national team? I will take the second part first because you kind of bailed me out already, Joe, because I was confused about that one, about where he should be, because as you said, he's playing on the left wing. It is really similar, especially to when the United States had the kind of left winger attacking side and the left central midfielder would go out wide. We seem to have stopped that yeah, rotation to some extent. Yeah. Uh, but that's where I was leaning. But I think you're you're dead on with the number eight shout. And I think especially so when you draw a connection to, and this seems odd, but Weston McKinney. And not the engine, not the motor, not the physicality, but specifically a thing that Greg Berhalter has talked about time and time again is Weston McKinney's ability to arrive late in the box at the opportune moment. And watching Georgi Mihailovic recently, specifically his second goal against FC Cincinnati, it's not even as impressive as his first goal when he kind of fakes one way, cuts back inside, fires it to the far side netting. That's a great goal. This second Second goal is really, really clever. Uh, Montreal wins the ball back about 10 yards from midfield in FC Cincinnati's territory. Uh, they, they drive forward with it. Mihailovic is trailing the play the whole time. He kind of holds his run at the top of the D around the top of the box. There's a few passes uh, in the 18. The ball is with Kai Kamara. He shapes like he's going to pass the ball backwards to Georgi Mihailovic, as I said, at the top of the box. And Yaya Kubo of FC Cincinnati, I think, sees this and just takes maybe a step or two towards closing down or trying to intercept that pass. And as Kubo takes that, that maybe the second step, Georgi Mihailovic is sprinting into the space that has now been opened up because Kubo has come out, and then he finishes the ball, I think, first time, gets that second goal. But that sort of ability to arrive late, hold the run, and then pounce when the opportunity presents itself stands out as a thing that Greg Berhalter has really, really valued uh, that his number eights be able to do, specifically Weston McKinney. And so if you're looking for a sort of technically proficient on-the-ball player who can score goals and can help facilitate attacking play... That does feel like Georgi Mihailovic. So I think you've you've made a pretty good argument there, Joe. Uh, I don't have a ton to say about what he's bad at, but I'm interested if Graham Ruffin agrees or disagrees with anything we've said so far. No, I, I agree with Joe in terms of playing him in, in central midfield for, for the USMNT. That feels in Berhalter's current system like it would like it would be the best fit. I would have concerns over a bit of a lack of physical strength yeah. in that position. So when opponents get close enough to Mihalovic, they, uh, when they match up against him, it, it doesn't, it, it feels like he doesn't always handle the physical side of the game well. And when that happens, he has a tendency to go missing in matches, which isn't what you want from a player who has such a, a giant influence on, on a team's attacking output. He is, uh, he is in, in, in the 87th percentile for, for key passes per 90 minutes and the 77th per, uh, percentile for passes into the final third. And what I do really like about Mihalovic to bring it back to something that, that, uh, I see as a, as a, as a plus 
is that he's always forward thinking and he is always looking to to make something happen. He's a 92nd percentile for through balls, 75th percentile for touches of the ball in, uh, in the attacking third, 73rd percentiles for carries into the opposition penalty area. So a lot of that does make me think of uh, Wes McKinney if he was going to play in that position. But Wes McKinney does have a physicality to him and I'm not entirely sure that Mihalovic does. Actually, in terms of like which system would he fit in best and Berhalter's just, he's never going to do this because we haven't seen it from him so far. But um, kind of a Steven Gerrard 4-3-2-1 with two attack, central attacking midfielders ahead of, ahead of a, a, a midfield platform of three. And then when you're in quick transition, those two players behind the central strikers split out to the wing as well. So you could kind of get that that hybrid number eight, number 10 role and also kind of the wing play from him as well. So basically what I'm saying is if Steven Gerrard ever takes over the USMNT, Jordi Mihaljevic is going to be his guy. But until then, I think he's a slightly awkward fit in, in, in the first team. All right, here's my here's my compromise. We call him into some camps, so he gets some reps, he gets to be around the team. But when everybody is fully fit, he has we have a, a treble roommate situation, and he has to room with Gio Reyna and Weston McKinney. Because we know he's <laughs> going to get some of the kind of physicality rubbing off on him from Weston McKinney. Maybe he gets that sort of uh, murderous intensity from Gio Reyna, and combined, that molds him into a, a, a stronger, sterner player who can handle the, those number eight responsibilities. Graham, would that solve some of the problem? Yeah, or we could just send him to the Vizela boarding school that Joe sent uh, Alex, Alex Mendes to. I mean, we've previously established that Joe is the dictator of Porto, so I feel like you do have some reach, some pull in Portugal, Joe. Do you want to make that happen? Oh, is yeah. that where we should send Georgie next? I've got connections. Actually, no, I don't really want to send Georgie to Vizela. I think he's a better player than that. But I, I do think it's interesting, the the conversation we've had around his position, because I do think that is... I think that will be a primary talking point if and when he's called up in June. I don't know where he should play. I don't know where Berhalter sees him. I, again, would have him as a number eight. But I do recognize that there's questions surrounding his fit there because he just doesn't press a lot. He's not the fastest guy. He's physically a pretty average dude. Although maybe to to, to go a little contrary to what Graham's saying, I think he is getting stronger. I guess I guess you didn't say he wasn't, Graham. But I think he's maybe a little stronger than we're giving him credit for. Weaker. But, but I, I don't know exactly how that will work. But again... I think this is a chance not to see a, a total squad overhaul in June, but Georgie is one of the guys that I think would be worth testing out, certainly over some of the other eight options that Peralta's brought in before. I don't see a downside, just like with CCV. I don't see any downside with bringing him in. You don't need to take a ton of minutes away from Weston McKenney and Yunus Musa and, and whoever else. You can get him in. There's going to be four games in that window. Maybe get him one start if he does well in camp even before that, and then just see what happens. See if it works and see if you think he brings any value either on the wing or in central midfield. I think I think what is confusing to me is that I think we're talking about a player who has lots of good abilities on the ball, off the ball, could be a, a good player, but at the same time is one of those maybe who doesn't quite fit. Maybe he's a square peg in a round hole when it comes to Greg Berhalter, that he does a lot of things well, but some of them aren't quite what the U.S. needs. To Graham's point, maybe that formation change lets him do some of the things that put him in stronger positions. Because with Montreal, it seems like he's really comfortable roaming around a little bit in the attack, shifting sides, trying to find space, having a little bit of attacking freedom. That's not really a thing I think of when it comes to Greg Berhalter's system and what he wants the U.S. to do. So, Joe, I then agree with you that maybe the way to resolve it is you bring him into camp and just try him in different spots over a couple different camps and see if he does fit and if he does where. And then if he's fitting in one spot, what needs to be improved to elevate that performance? That's the kind of organic 
evaluation and development I would prefer to see with him. Who knows if we'll get that, but maybe he's just one of those players who's like a little bit too much of a uh, utility player right now uh, for or from a U.S. perspective, and maybe you sharpen up a couple things, you get him more familiar with what one position would be, and then we see how he fits in. Could be. I also I also think, though, Taylor, that being a utility player has a ton of value for the U.S., especially ahead of the World Cup. We don't know if it's mm. going to be a 23-man roster or a 26-man roster. Either way, it seems to me that having another number eight, if we do for a second for the sake of this point, label Georgia as an eight, if you have him in that group as maybe the fourth eight, he can also play out wide if you need it. And Gio Reyna can swap. I mean, the, I think having someone like Georgi Mihailovic gives you more options with your squad, similar yeah. to Joe Scali, similar with Serginho Dest, all these other players that can do more than one job. And I think that's important. I think that's another, honestly, it's more of a bonus for Georgie in my eyes than it is a, a hindrance. We don't know exactly where he's best on the field. And so there is some concern there. But overall, I think that that's more of a good thing than it is a bad thing. My only concern with that, because I don't necessarily disagree with you, but my, my concern then becomes, we know Burhalter's system is fairly complex, and at times players have struggled to get all the nuances of it. And so if you have a utility player coming in who can do a couple different things, it feels like that requires a pretty high soccer intelligence to be able to kind of process a lot of information so that you can play a number of different positions effectively, or at least somewhat effectively do either of you have ideas on how to evaluate soccer IQ? Because I'm not sure that I do. There's definitely no, you know, sit down standardized test that's going to work. I'm sure there's online quizzes that probably aren't official. <laughs> uh, but like I, I would I usually think of like taking up good positioning, yep. uh, yeah. good passing vision and good awareness of sort of how plays are developing both in attack and defense. That's kind of broadly what I think of with soccer IQ. Yeah, and I always put a high value on awareness of space and how to use space because I feel like that is the that when when you are when when you're in the youth ranks, there's loads of players that have good technical ability. But the thing for me anyway, the thing that separates good players from great players is how they know how to use space and how to move the ball into that space and how to move themselves into that space as well and not have thoughts that other players don't have. So I think Mihalovic is actually pretty good at that, but you're right. I don't. I don't have a a true test on how to measure that. The BuzzFeed Soccer IQ quiz is how I do it. <laughs> I just send it to different players and they take it. The, the, the last point I'll say on Georgie Taylor to your to your questions about you know will he be able to adjust to the system? He's already done that before. Mm. Like he was he was involved in that very first camp, that January camp where players were taking on so much information. He's got six caps. The last one coming in December 2020 against El yep. Salvador. Like he knows the drill, and if anything, and, and you're you're welcome to disagree with me on this. I think the U.S. system has simplified exponentially from January of 2019 to now. Like we don't see those rotations between center mids and wingers. It's it's a pretty straightforward four three three. We're gonna high press. There's some rotations in the press that he'll have to to get reacclimated to, but like offensively, the winger role is pretty standard. You occupy the half space. You might do some interchanging with the fullback, depending on who's there. The center mid job is pretty standard as well. You might drop into the the fullback spot or you might push up between the lines. I think these are things that, that most of these players should be pretty comfortable doing already. But again, we don't, we don't really know that. We haven't seen Georgie in a little while now for the U.S., so maybe that's not true. But I, I think he'll be okay adjusting to the scene. 
I do think the system has simplified a little bit. I also think we've seen the kind of the group, as we've come to call them, get more familiar with it. And when you have more familiarity, you can execute more effectively, you can play more uh, fluidly. And, and so I guess what we should maybe then do is lower the bar a bit for the next couple months as we have new players coming in and just give them a little bit of time to grow and, and see how they fit before we say, nope, one game, he didn't look that good. Let's move them on. If we were to move them on, though, I am now obsessed. I feel like we need to trademark this one so that we can create tons of merchandise. It's all about merch, apparently, on this episode. <laughs> Instead of a finishing school, I love that Joe has created the Vizela roughening school. That's what I'm calling it now. If you need to toughen up, you go to Vizela. They'll toughen you up good, and then you come back yeah, and play. Yeah, they'll kick you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I don't yeah. think that is a thing that our final player needs because he is out kicking the ball into the net, and that's pretty much what you need. You don't have to go to roughening mm-hmm. school if you are scoring goals, if you are Brandon Vasquez. Graham, talk to us about Brandon Vasquez, if you will. I'm going to assume this was a guy you weren't so familiar with and maybe are a bit more now. I would I would say that was the case up until the end of last season in MLS, I I, uh, I didn't watch a lot of FC Cincinnati for for the good of my own health, of course. <laughs> and this season, he has been on fire, so I have actually seen quite a bit of him. And also, Joe mentions him in like every podcast that we do, so I, I had no choice. You're welcome, but to, America, to keep a, a closer a closer eye on him. He is a uh, centre forward, as I say, there uh, plays for M- FC Cincinnati. Has been at uh, Atlanta United. Earlier in his career, he is a tall centre forward. I think it's the first thing we should say. He plays very well as a target man, thanks to his size and physicality. But he also possesses good uh, or decent speed, I should say, good technical ability. So you can't really call him one dimensional. He's not necessarily a player that you would simply hit with long balls, although he he can hold up the ball with his with his back to to goal. Others can play off him, but you really want to be giving Vasquez goal-scoring chances inside the box, given that he is currently the MLS top scorer right now with five goals in six games for uh, Cincy this season. And if we're talking about Vasquez's best qualities, I think we have to mention his movement in the box. He repeatedly makes excellent moves to get into goal-scoring positions. He attacks the near post to get on the end of crosses. Um, he's got good anticipation to get there ahead of opponents. He finds spaces between centre-backs. He's also good at the back post too, where he, he's kind of got a, a natural aggression. Um, I've liked that word in this podcast, aggression. Um, but it certainly applies to Brandon Vasquez and that helps him win duels. And he's shown that he's a good finisher with his head and he is good at um, finishing from difficult angles with his feet. And he's very good at when he has a yard of space, getting a shot away. And I also think his first touch as well. I, I, I think a good first touch is so important for a centre forward because in that position, you're rarely going to get a lot of time to set yourself. You're almost always going to have a, a or always going to be at a numerical disadvantage with players around you. And so it's about making the, the, the most of the space that you do have. And I think Vasquez is very good at taking a, a good first touch and quickly getting a, a shot away or uh, turning a pass around the corner for a, for a teammate. And when he plays quickly in those moments, I think Vasquez is one of the most incisive centre forwards in MLS at the moment. Where he can get into a bit of trouble is if he has to take a few touches or if he has to dribble or burst into a channel with kind of the ball at his feet. I do think he has some weaknesses, but I have been talking for a long time, so I will hand over the mic to someone else. 
Uh, Joe, I think Graham has, has done a lot of uh, good work there yeah. covering the broad strokes of Brandon Vasquez. And when we're talking about a player who has a good first touch, can hold the ball up, can be a long ball threat, can uh, drop deep to help in possession, is clever in the box and can score goals, that feels like it's ticking a lot of boxes for what the U.S. <laughs> needs for a number nine. I mean, it just ticks a lot of the boxes that every team wants from their well, number there's nine. That. There's Brandon that Vasquez too. is just a really, really good player right now for Cincinnati, and he has been a good player for other stretches in MLS at the end of last season, even earlier on in his career. He's shown some some really nice flashes, and now he's finally getting a run as one of the guys for an MLS team. He is a key player for Cincinnati. He's one of their stars, to be completely honest. So he's a very, very good player. He's not Jesus Ferreira and how he's going to drop in and combine so there's differences there, but I think you want someone different if you're Greg Berhalter. You want someone who will do more of the physical stuff and can be a hold-up player, but but Graham also detailed very well about how he has soft feet. He's he's decent on the ball, just he's not going to drop in to be a pseudo number 10 at times like Ferreira does. So I I like Brandon Vasquez a lot. I think I've made that pretty clear over the last few weeks and really throughout this MLS season. My only question about how he'll fit with this U.S. team. And I really do hope he's called up in June. I think if he's not, it's a missed opportunity. At least I say that now. Maybe things change by by the end of May and he looks like a different player and, and I'm not as excited about him. But if everything stays the same, the one question I have about Brandon Vasquez with the U.S. is, is can he play in a different role? Yes, he's playing as a striker for Cincinnati, but he plays in a front two with a number 10 behind him. So he plays with Don Baggi next to him and Lucho Acosta behind him. So there, there's that front three, but it's a completely different orientation than the U.S. uses in their front three. The U.S. plays with a single nine with two wingers who come inside, and so there's some players to combine with, certainly, but then they play with two eights and, and not a single number 10. So there's fewer players immediately around Vasquez that he can combine with, which does lead for the U.S., to those nines being isolated at times. And so Ferreira helps solve that problem because he drops in and purposefully combines and he becomes that linking player. Vasquez won't do that with the U.S. So I, I don't know how he'll fit with the United States. It's a very different system stylistically. It's a different positional alignment as well. But I wouldn't let that hold me back from calling him up because, again, at this point, if you're a number nine with an American passport who's scoring goals, maybe even Haji Wright, who I haven't gotten a chance to watch a bunch of his film yet in Turkey, but I, I would like to. I mean, if you're a number nine who's breathing and scoring goals for a decent team, you're you're in the conversation. And Brandon Vasquez, I think, is even more than just in the conversation at this point. Yeah. The thing I like about Vasquez at, with relation to the USMNT and ha- him possibly get, forcing his way into that roster for the World Cup is just the option that he might give Berhalter. And when I, my, one of my, my biggest uh, fears or misgivings of Berhalter is that, and I, I do think he has changed over the course of his time as the, the national team manager. But if, if he only has the blinkers on and he wants one approach and he wants his team to play a certain way, if plan A doesn't work, then I fear maybe he doesn't have a, a plan B. And so with when we're talking about the number nine position for the US, I really like Jesus Ferreira playing that position as the first pick. But if that's not working, I want someone else with a slightly different profile, or actually not even a slightly different profile, a, a, a totally different profile, so that the US can change things up a little bit. And that's the player that I think Berhalter has to identify between now and the World Cup. We've spoken about maybe Jordan Peefock being that player. And I think Vazquez is, is right up there as, as an option. So it's not necessarily about... I think at this point, when we're five months out from a World Cup, there's not a Robert Lewandowski coming through for the US. That player is not going to emerge in the next five months. So it's about finding an option. And I, I like a lot in uh, what I see in Vasquez. 
Yeah, I, I agree with what both of you have said. And Graham, I think when you were mentioning his soft feet, his ability to kind of control in the box, the one uh, that stood out to me in that moment was the one nil uh, get go- in the goal against uh, Montreal. He has it's basically like a shot that's spilled and it's at the near post and he has to take a touch around the sprawling goalkeeper and I think a defender and then pass pass it in to an open net. But it still requires awareness to spot that if I take this touch, it's going to pull the defender to one side and then I can finish it really expertly. But so many times we've seen the U.S. have clear cut scoring opportunities and fail to take them or not take them cleanly or it gets say and I just I don't think we always have that kind of clinical finisher there that we might need. I'm not even sure that's Brandon Vasquez. All I can say is that from what I've seen of him this season and last season as well, it seems like he is a player who thrives on going at the goal and putting himself into attacking positions. And I do think that there are forwards who who don't look as confident in those moments. There are players who just don't look like they have that killer instinct. I want to score this goal right now. You you have players who will want to pass the ball or make the runs or make decoy runs, and they're happy to score, but it's not what they're all about. And watching Vasquez, his movement and determination to get into a goal-scoring position stands out to me. He knows when to sort of stand offside and then check back onside at the right moment, like he did versus Orlando this season. I think there is... A lot to like about him, but I'm also keenly aware that I am desperate to find somebody who I feel comfortable can do all of the things that Greg Berhalter wants his number nine to do, which maybe leads to a larger question about are we asking too much of that number nine? But maybe that's a conversation for another day. For now, I will just say that watching Brandon Vasquez was a very fun way to end my research for this show because it did have me feeling a bit more optimistic than I was already feeling about the U.S. I am ready to be hurt again. I mean, that's that's kind of how I'm feeling, <laughs> right, about any number nines. I am not optimistic about Brendan Vasquez or anyone because we just haven't seen it. But mm-hmm. Vasquez feels like the next man up to, to get reps, to get a look in June. <laughs> and, and maybe it works and I am not hurt. But, I mean, who knows at this point? June honestly can't come soon enough because I really want to see what happens. The the thing about Vasquez is he he needs to keep his goal scoring rate up. That sounds very obvious for any striker because if he doesn't, then is he offering anything? Or rather, before Joe jumps through the mic and uh, throttles me, he needs to keep getting good opportunity, good Graham, goal scoring opportunities. So Great work. <laughs> um, otherwise, he's not offering anything over the current options that the u.s have the u.s needs a, a striker who who's in areas to score goals and has a good goal scoring record so if, if all of a sudden he reverts back to last season's scoring record then maybe his candidacy is not so strong i am now i heard everything you said graham but i must admit i am more focused on the idea of you and joe getting into an argument and like even extending it to like a physical altercation, I, I, can't, I can't even figure out how it would happen because you're both so nice, but also just so chill that I feel like any disagreement would ultimately be like, yeah, I see what you're saying. That's not that big of a I deal. I, Let's just hang out. Graham would just be like, all right. And I'd be like, yeah, it's, that's cool. Whatever. And then we just <laughs> yeah. move on. I mean, I feel like Joe might have an edge. I mean, earlier he was going to explain the whole experience of boarding school to us, walk us through that whole traumatic experience. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> watch out there's a secret side to you you don't want I mean, to end up in Vizela I'm just going to tell you that that's what's it the dictator of Porto is sending people to a roughening school I think Joe maybe does have a little bit of that kind of the street I- inside edge but overall I think I'm happy about the two of you being pals and talking about soccer and I'm pretty happy about all five of the players that we have discussed today uh, anything from either of you anything else from either of you about Brandon Vasquez not for me good player let's let's see more good stuff from him before June
Yeah, so don't overhype. Uh, let's keep it calm. Let's see what he keeps doing this season. But Joe says he's definitely going to start in Qatar. That is correct. Yes. Perfect. Good. Very good. Uh, on that note, Joe Lowry, thank you for uh, rolling <laughs> yes-anding with me uh, putting you into uncomfortable positions. I pretty much just yes you. I didn't really and you at the end, Taylor. But either way, no, thank you for having me. <laughs> I appreciate that, Graham. I appreciate you as well, my friend. Thank you, Taylor. And if any listeners want to buy any CCV merchandise, yep. you can visit my Etsy at com <laughs> slash Cameron Carter Vickers Hype Train Qatar Here We Come. Oh, yeah. Com. <laughs> I do love that you you took your daughter's uh, Thomas the Tank Engine uh, and just put Cameron Carter Vickers' face on that like you did with the Ryan Bailey uh, uh, head yeah. that you had for our live show. And now you're selling those as the Cameron Carter Vickers Hype Train, I believe. Graham's on it. Yeah, it's just all my, all my daughter's toys, but with his face, it's, it's slightly <laughs> nightmarish, actually. There's a Peppa Pig. There's Thomas the Tank Engine. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anybody in the U.S. pool that resembles uh, Daddy Pig. But I think if they do, they are very much skipping legs. I don't think we need to worry yeah. about that. And no, Enough. nowhere near the squad. <laughs> Enough children's cartoon references. I will just say, listeners, thank you so much for listening. We've got listener questions tomorrow. We've got Champions League Review Thursday. We've got Allocation Disorder Friday and a Soccer 101 to round out the week. So look forward to all that. But for now, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you all again soon. 